Sego, I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Hey, um, I want to thank those who uh, who are listening to the program, who support WBAI and WPFW, uh, and I want to encourage those who haven't supported to to reach in their pockets and and make a donation to these fine stations. Stations. If you are listening in New York, uh, you can go to uh, WBAI's pledge line at 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. If you are listening um, in Washington, D.C. on WPFW's Jazz and Justice Radio, you can go to their pledge line, which is 202-588-9739 or go online to WPFWDC.org slash donate. Uh, I really wish you would support these stations. Um, I am uh, very grateful to have these uh, airtime on these platforms. And while I, I do push the show as a podcast and I do live streaming on Facebook, um, as my good friend Michael G. Haskins used to say, that's narrowcasting. We, we also really rely on broadcasting. And broadcasting just puts our signal out there for everybody to catch not necessarily because they're looking for us either, just, be, just because we're on the radio. So, um, again, I, I really tru- truly wish that you would support these fine stations by going to their pledge lines or going to their websites and following their prompts for, uh, for making donations. All right. Um, look, I oftentimes don't have good news to talk about on, on this program because, you know, I am talking about um, um, something we're fighting all the time. And... And while sometimes, you know, I can't talk about the good news that we, we have in those fights, um, oftentimes I'm, I'm talking about the next hurdle that we're, we're facing. Well, you know, I, a friend of mine uh, from Tuscarora uh, sent me an, a news article from um, uh, APTN in, on the Canadian side um, where the Vatican has, after years and years of us pressing them on everything from residential schools uh, and the doctrine of Christian discovery, has really come out and what I would say formally um, repudiated, and they actually use that word in uh, in a statement. And, and this is all happening in the midst of uh, of the Pope being uh, being ill with a respiratory virus of some sort. But um, in the statement, the Vatican said, in no uncertain terms, that the ch- the Church's uh, magisterium ho- upholds and respects and respect due uh, upholds the respect due to every human being. The Catholic Church therefore repudiates those concepts that fail to recognize the inherent human rights of indigenous peoples, including what has become known as the legal and political doctrine of discovery. Okay, well, they've done that. In the past, what they've done is they say, well, that doctrine of discovery is no longer in effect. And, and this, oftentimes they would cite um, a, a papal bull that came at the tail end of the string of papal bulls that essentially created that doctrine of discovery. Um, and that was, that was called, uh, um, uh, the, the ninth, or 1537 sub, Sublimus Deus from, uh, Pope Paul III. And what he wrote was, we define and declare that the said Indians and all other people who may later be discovered by Christians are by no means to be deprived of their liberty or possessions of their property, even though they be outside the Christian faith and that they should freely and illegitimately enjoy their liberty and possession of their property, nor should they be, be in any way enslaved. Should the contrary happen, it shall be null and have no effect. Well, <laughs> that's nice that they said that in, 19, or in 1537, but the, but the reality is the Catholic Church, 
church continued to be a part of the colonization that uh, Native people uh, endured. And look, it was the Catholic Church and, and their, their saint that they just named, that the current pope just named recently, um, Hunapera Serra, who was responsible for, for grabbing up thousands of children, many of them, and, and most of them dying before they ever got out of, you know, out of, out of their childhood. But claiming since he was able to baptize them, he saved their souls, even if he couldn't save their lives. And so this is, you know, and of course, South America, you know, would be, would be it, would, it would be Catholic Church working hand in hand with, uh, with much of the colonization of South America. Um, and, and in fact, many riches that were, uh, that were obtained from these, uh, these territories in South America, including gold and silver, would enrich the coffers of the, of, of the Vatican. So, you know, look, you have a string of papal bulls that, that really suggest that we are, we are barely, barely if, if human at all, um, and basically almost calling for the taking of our freedoms and our property and, and, and lives if necessary. Uh, so when this one papal bull gets, uh, gets released in, at the tail end of that string of papal bulls, it didn't undo it, and it certainly didn't repudiate it. And in fact, that papal bull, the Sublimus Deus, doesn't repudiate the previous ones. This statement does. The problem is that this statement doesn't go as far enough to say to, to the countries that, you know, that codified this into the law, like the United States, which they did in 1823, that that codification should be false and it should be vacated. We, we still live today with, with many uh, references to the doctrine of Christian discovery or the court case where it was codified, which was Johnson v. McIntosh. We, we saw the, the liberal darling of the court, a Jewish woman, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, cite the doctrine of discovery as footnote number one when she was ruling against the Oneidas in, in a case in, in 2005. And, you know, it's not enough just to, to say that they cite this stuff, but you have to understand the damage that is done. The Oneidas... Were, were cast into a situation where they were forced to wheel and deal with the state about how they would hold certain properties and, uh, and limit their, their uh, whatever land claims claim they were going to make. I mean, it, it, it had a devastating effect. So these things, these things didn't go away because of that papal bull from, uh, from 1537. And I suggest even with this repudiation that many have called for, including myself, I don't know that it goes far enough until it really addresses the nation states that have used this thing to, to do everything that they said would be null and void, like enslavement and taking of property and, uh, and depriving us of, of our liberty. Look, the Catholic Church was one of the primary churches that was employed by the federal government and in some cases state governments to run these residential schools where our children were taken and where they were abused and their liberties were certainly taken. Their, their liberty to, to remain Native people were, was taken. In fact, kill the Indian, save the man was the policy and the strategy. And that's what the churches did. They, they killed that part of, of every child. And in some cases, they would kill the whole child. But, you know, I say some, some were, 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 were killed, and, but they were all killed some. And, you know, to, to borrow from an, another analogy used in war, I guess. But, uh, but that was, that's really the role the Catholic Church played in, and it wasn't the only church, but it was one of the primary churches that was used in, uh, in the residential slash boarding schools uh, era, which, which, you know, and again, those schools 
the first schools that were funded by the federal government as early as, you know, the, uh, like 1813 were, were Catholic missions. And they were, they were supplied funds through a, a, what was called the Civilization Act, which was, again, a, an, another effort by the United States government to shift how the genocide would continue and to shift it upon our children and to make us go away by, uh, by eliminating our distinction and our autonomy and our identity. That was the effort, and the churches, including the Catholic Church, played a, played a huge role in that. Now, look, I'm, I'm glad that this statement was released, and I think that we, we need to cite this as often as possible. Certainly, if, um, if Ruth Bader Ginsburg were alive today or if any other Supreme Court justice were to, were to try to cite that again, we would, uh, we would call upon the statement that says, no, that, that, was, that was false. And in fact, it was probably false before the United States even, even began to utilize and, and depend on this doctrine of Christian discovery because of that, that papal bull in, in uh, 1537. But see, and it's funny, even in the statement, the Catholic Church is saying, well, the colonial powers were manipulating the words of the church. Well, yeah, but the church knew it. I mean, the, the church was complicit in it, and it, it always was. Like I said, residential schools, how much the Vatican was enriched from, uh, from gold and silver from uh, South America and Latin America. I mean, it was, I mean, it's pretty obvious. And, you know, and look, we have been, it's been a campaign led first by, by Stephen Newcomb, who wrote um, Pagans in the Promised Land, who was, uh, you know, co-producer of, uh, of the Doctrine of Discovery film that I've, I've screened in New York before. Um, and, and, and in fact, you know, uh, Stephen Newcomb had talked to some of the legal counsel from the Vatican over the years, and, and they kind of passed it off. We, we've seen, you know, uh, visit after visit after visit of, of, of different Native people from various nations who have carried banners in front of the Vatican, um, were, you know, were ushered out of the way before a mass uh, fairly recently. We, we, we've seen this, this, this play out. And, of course, the Pope's visit to Canada last year where he apologized for, and again, it was a pretty weak apology. What he apologized was uh, for what, what churches had done, not for what the church had done in terms of residential schools. He made it sound like, like they were somehow rogue, but like I said, the, you know, the, the Catholic Church and their abuse of children you know, has been well-documented when it comes to white kids, but what the Catholic Church and other churches have done with, with the consent and funding of, uh, of the Canadian government, the U.S. government, state governments, to, to, to inflict abuse upon Native children, and in fact, see, you know, cause the deaths of Native children. Look, part of the reason the, the, the Pope made this apology tour in, in Canada was because of the, uh, the revelation, which was no revelation to us, but the proof that there were unmarked graves. There were, there, were, there were mass graves and unmarked graves at the sites of, of, of every um, residential school that has had the ability to bring in ground-penetrating radar because Canada wouldn't check it out. The, the nations themselves had to, had to do this. And, and we're, you know, we're, we're over thousands of children that have now been located through, through some of this technology. And, and, and again, what, no surprise to us. Our, our people have said, no, our children turned up missing. They never came back. We know that they were killed. They, we know that they died. And so, and, and part of the Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission 
was developing uh, a, a, a fairly long list of action items. Among those action items were the things that Canada was supposed to do to help affirm the, the loss of these children, to, to make sure that, that all these children could be accounted for, and, and Canada refused. In fact, I don't think Canada fulfilled any of the action items that came out of the Truth and Re Re uh, Reconciliation Commission. And of course, now some of the attention is, is being turned towards the United States, who hasn't reckoned with, this, with their uh, role in this. And let's face it, they started this whole thing. They started this whole uh, residential school um, strategy to commit genocide against our people. Canada learned it from the U.S. The U.S. had three times more uh, residential schools than, than Canada did. And, and to the extent that we're, we're somewhere just under 10,000 children that have now been um, affirmed uh, to be found in these, these mass graves and, or unmarked graves, uh, we know that that number is probably going to be four, three, four, five times as many in the United States. And, and even though there's a native person at the head of the Interior Department in the, in the United States, there has been, there always has been dragging, uh, dragging of the feet, you know, in, in terms of really addressing this stuff. They've got a lot of documentation already. I mean, let's be honest, churches were always pretty good about documenting stuff, even, even the bad stuff. So um, I think it's really important that, that we, we continue to hold the United States, Canada, and frankly, the Catholic Church re responsible for what many of these children had, had, uh, had gone through and, and the trauma that would follow the children who survived these schools. Isn't, isn't it funny that, that I don't think of any other school that when, you when you're considered an alumni of that school, you're, out, you're not referred to as alumni, but survivors of that school. But that's, that's the way it is with, with residential schools. But I think we have to hold the Catholic Church and, and the other churches who were involved in the administration and the operation of these, these residential schools accountable. Uh, I think this is uh, a, a good, it is good news that the, that the, that the Vatican has issued a statement where they, where they specifically repudiate what has become to be known as the doctrine of discovery or the doctrine of Christian discovery. And I, you know, I, I didn't know that this day would come. Uh, so I'm, I'm a little surprised by it, but I'm also um, wary of the effects. I, it doesn't change U.S. law. U.S. has codified that, uh, you know, that doctrine. It is a part of their, their, their legal uh, um, uh, inventory. And, and it's funny because even when, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg ruled against the Oneidas, she cited the doctrine of Christian discovery as the, uh, in her footnotes but it supported some of the other quote unquote doctrines that she's, you know, that she cited, like what she called the doctrine of impossibility, which was also an incorrect use of a legal, uh, a legal doctrine. She said that once land had been, uh, the, the jurisdiction of land had been uh, turned over to, uh, or lost to, uh, to colonies, to, you know, to, to states and to other jurisdictions, that it was impossible for native people to reclaim that land and then reassert jurisdiction on that. And she cited an example out in Yankton Sioux territory or something like that, when merely, you know, 200 miles down the road, you had, um, you had the, the Seneca Nation, which had an act of Congress, which was part of the, the Salamanca Lease Settlement Act, that where Congress affirmed and, and created 
the opportunity for, for Senecas to reacquire lost land as their land, and not as trust land, but as their original title land. So while Ruth Bader Ginsburg conveniently found a case out west, she ignored something that was barely west of her uh, inciting the doctrine of impossibility, because it's not impossible. It was not only possible, but it was, it, had, it was doable and it was done. And the Senecas did it. The Senecas did reacquire lost land. And they, frankly, they continue to re reacquire lost land in, in some regards. So, yeah, the, the, the impact of the doctrine of discovery or the doctrine of Christian discovery has been incredible um, as it has impacted Native people. And it's, it's also been very contradictory, you know, because, you know, this, this thing gets codified in law in, in 1823, uh, but only a few years before that, the, the, the United States had negotiated or had written up, I don't, I'm not sure that how well it was negotiated or really ratified on the Native side, the, the Canada-Dago Treaty, where several times in that treaty, the United States says, the United States will acknowledge that the land is, is the Senecas or whomever, the Cayugas, the Mohawks, whoever, and that the United States would never claim the same, nor would they interfere with the free use and enjoyment of that land or interfere with the allies that we had who were, uh, who were living and, and fishing and hunting and that kind of stuff on, on that land. So we, we actually had a treaty ratified by the United States or at least negotiated by the United States, written up by the United States, that said that we were not bound by the doctrine of Christian discovery. And for those of you who don't know what that is, what it says is that once a, a, a non-Christian people were discovered by Christian nations of the world, that our lands could be claimed, that we could be enslaved, that our property could be taken. And all of that stuff did happen. And in 1823, when the, the United States or, uh, codified that into law, what they basically said was, upon discovery, our, our sovereignty was necessarily diminished. Well, why would white people laying eyes on us diminish our autonomy and our distinction. But that's what Justice John Marshall said in, uh, in Johnson v. McIntosh. And he and went on to say and create essentially a, a, a problem solver for the United States. He essentially created, through the doctrines of Christian discovery, the means to declare that the United States had legal title to the land that they knew they didn't have. In fact, he called it a pretension. He, you know, that that discovery could be tantamount to, to conquest. And that's, and that's been the body of, uh, and the foundation of law. And the fact that we still have battles today, every day over things like jurisdiction, over laws that get passed regarding our activity, um, is, is all a result of that doctrine of Christian discovery. And one that, yes, I think countries did exploit the words of the Catholic Church, but it was still the words of the Catholic Church at a time when the Catholic Church was was preeminent in the, especially in the in the nations of Europe. I mean, at the time, the, the uh, even England hadn't separated from the Catholic Church. They, you know, this we're, we're talking about 1492. We're talking about the papal bulls that would that would uh, you know follow that um, that that voyage. It was clear what the Catholic Church was doing. They were they were applauding this um, forced imposition and spread of Christendom. That's what the, that's what the Pale of Old said. So, you know, I'm glad to get to, to see this. I'm glad to, to hear this. Um, and while I'm not skeptical, because, you know, again, I think the Catholic Church has dodged a bullet for years. They, they, oftentimes they've tried to say, well, we don't really follow that anymore. Yeah, but you won't come out and say it. And now they've said it. So 
it'll be interesting to see. I, I've oftentimes heard people say, well, nobody will ever relitigate the, uh, you know, the merits or, or the, the findings of Johnson v. McIntosh because it was a case from, you know, uh, 200 years ago. But, you know, uh, you, you strip away the, that church doctrine that was so heavily relied upon, including, you know, even, even Ruth Bader Ginsburg's ruling in 2005. What happens if you strip away that church doctrine that has been the foundation of, all the, of so many of these cases? And essentially, every jurisdictional case that we lose, which we essentially lose all of them, <laughs> is because of the doctrine of Christian discovery. Johnson v. McIntosh, all of that. And so, I mean, I don't see a, a, a wholesale landslide of, of, of cases being overturned. But, you know, there, there, may, be, there may be some reason to, uh, you know, to select cases that we, we should revisit. And, you know, I'm not, look, I'm not a fan of entering into their, court, uh, into their courts. They, they rarely rule in our favor. And if not the doctrine of Christian discovery, they'll come up with some other, other means to, you know, to, to justify it. They pass a law that they have no grounds to pass. I talk about IGRA, the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. Their, the Supreme Court of the United States ruled that the Native people had the right to do gaming. They didn't give it to us, but they, they ruled in, in a Cabazon case in California well, if the states do gaming, then Native people could do gaming, which in a, in of itself was a bit of a restriction because what if a state didn't do gaming? But then a year later, they passed the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act, and they, they just pulled it out of thin air. They just said, okay, now we're going to assert how Native people can legally do it. Well, we already could legally do it. We already could legally do gaming. So they passed this law, and the law is flawed in many, many, many ways. It gives a disproportionate amount of power to states, which is something that we've always fought. We've always fought more the states than the federal government because it's the states that we interface with for the most part, over whether it's taxation or, or, or land use and that kind of stuff. It's rarely, at least out here, I, really, I realize it's different where the BIA is so dominant in some of the other nations out west. But out east here, we rarely... Had to had to fight the federal government. We have, but but it's it's not often. Usually, it's the states, and we push back against the states being able to tell us what we can and can't do on our territories, including the sales of tobacco and motor fuel and other things. Um, we've 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 promoted ourselves as we've as we've done these things. But when IGRA gets passed, you, all of a sudden the federal government saying, "No, you have to enter into a partnership, a compact with the state that you're that you're residing in." And of course, we, we claim we're not living in New York State. We're living on native territories, our territories, which are not a part of the state. But that's not the way the federal government passed this law. And we weren't a part of those negotiations. This just gets passed almost in a rush because of the, the ruling that the Supreme Court made in Cabazon. By the way, this is the anniversary of Kathy Hochul, the governor of New York, extorting half a billion dollars out of Seneca, Seneca Nation for, for revenue sharing. She shut down all of their operation accounts and forced them to, to release from an escrow account, which she didn't go after, but forced the Senate Nation to release, uh, I think, $560 million, $560 million to the state that the state claims was owed to them through, through revenue sharing. Well, it's not sharing if you're, if, you're, if you're extorting that money out of them. And, of course, what she used was a state law which she shouldn't have been able to do because state laws shouldn't have applied here. She should have had to rely on, on the federal government, the federal courts, to, if, if she was going to force this money out of the Senecas. But she used a state law 
that was essentially designed for people who had a fine imposed upon them by the state, but refused to, but refused to pay it. So if you had a, a delinquent tax or, or some other, you know, perhaps a punitive fine or something like that uh, assessed against you, then the state could go in and seize your, or freeze, not seize, but freeze your accounts and force you to, uh, you to pay. That's what the state used. That's what Kathy Hochul, again, Republicans do not have a monopoly on racism, folks. We see this from, from Democrats. In fact, her predecessor, Andrew Cuomo, was, you know, was really free to, to make really racist statements about the Seneca Nation and others. And this was the action. And, and let me remind you that when Kathy Hochul got that half a billion dollars, she took most of it, $420 million, and handed it over to a billionaire who owns the Buffalo Bills to build a new stadium. So she didn't, she took that money twice. She took it from the Senecas and then she took it from New York State because she didn't get that, uh, uh, that approved from, you know, through the budget. She just says, okay, I got this extra money now. I'm going to, uh, um, that's what we're going to pledge. So now the state only needs to come up with another $183 million to fulfill my commitment of, uh, you know, of, of $600 million or, or no, yeah, $600 million for, for a new stadium for the Bills. Um, and look, public financing is, is something that has been frowned upon for these, these kinds of projects. They are not economic winners. They're great for the owners of the football team. They're, the value of their team you know, increases you know, geometrically when they have a brand new stadium to play in. So this was good for, for Terry and uh, Kim Pagula, who own the, the Buffalo Bills. But it does not stimulate an economy. I mean, the, these, these stadiums play 13, you know, I don't know, what do they play Eight or eight or ten games a year in, in these stadiums, um, and that's and they're being built for football. I'm not saying they don't have other uses, but an open air stadium, which this one is, means that it's really cold in that in that damn thing during the winter time. So, I mean, it, it's you know there's a, there's a relationship even between the two stories I just told. Like I said, when you when you understand that the state having the kind of power it does over uh, what happens on native territories even as we push back, and then you have the federal government backing up the states, or in the case of gaming, giving the states a right that they never would have had you know, if, if it were up to us, which was to, which was to force us into a gaming compact, which, by the way, the Senecas are still paying the state, and they are in the process of negotiating a new compact with the state, and they're being advised by legal counsel to, to once again enter into a revenue-sharing agreement. And the problem with revenue-sharing is that it becomes a percentage of their, uh, of their gaming. The, the truth of the matter is, New York State took more out of Seneca gaming in 20 years, or, as, or should, let me put this, as much as the Senecas got. They, they'll end up with $2.2 billion when all is said, and at the, at the, lar the largest end, the Senecas might have gotten $2.4 billion out of it because the, the state gets money off the top before any... They don't have to invest anything. All they had to do was claim... They, they were going to offer some exclusivity. But the fact of the matter is the state did nothing but expand its gaming throughout the state, including now with online uh, betting for, uh, for sports books, um, mobile gaming of, 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 of a, you know, in a variety of ways, expanding their lotteries. And, and now, in, in, uh, now they have passed, or, or they, they passed in, in the wake of some of this negotiation with the Senecas and, the, and during the, the run of their compact, they legalized class-free gaming, so they put up uh, casinos throughout the state, including one right on the edge of what would be considered 
the, the exclusivity zone, but clearly still within the Seneca Nation's gaming market. So look, there was no exclusivity given. There was just happened to be $2.2 billion that went to the state from, from the Seneca Nation. Now, $2.2 billion to New York State may not seem like a lot of money, but to the Seneca Nation, it almost equals what the entire amount of revenue that, they, that they've gotten out of, their, uh, out of their gaming facilities. And it's a big deal to a, a nation that, that's only 8,000 people. It's a big deal. And, you know, and frankly, $2.2 billion is a, a big number for any of us. It's funny because Andrew Cuomo used to boast about what he called the Buffalo Billion, about how he was going to put a billion dollars into, uh, into the economy here in Buffalo. I don't even know if that ever happened. But if you took $2 billion out, putting $1 billion into, into some of these pay-to-play relationships that Andrew Cuomo had, it's, it's, it's hardly um, a net gain for, um, for Western New York. In fact, I would argue that $2.2 billion going to the state and only about 25% of that coming back to the region is a drain on the economy here because the Seneca's take all gets spent right into, into the Western New York economy. So I know I've talked about this before, but on the anniversary of, of this really aggressive maneuver that Kathy Hochul pulled, which really puts her at the top of the list as far as the, the, the worst governors that, from a Native standpoint that we've had. Now, I want to remind you, she also vetoed the Unmarked Burial Sites um, Protection Act, which may even be related to what, they're, what they might dig up when they build this new stadium. But certainly, my friends like uh, in the Shinnecock Territory and, and, uh, and, and uh, Unkachug, uh, Puspatuck Territory, they, uh, Harry Wallace, friend of mine, he was on the show, we talked about this. They lobbied hard for this because they were seeing private property developers dig up sites that they knew had burial sites on them and, and with, with no ability to, to try to repatriate you know, bones or, you know, or, or artifacts, not, none of that stuff. And, and of course, this bill wasn't, um, this, this law that was passed unanimously, by the way, by both chambers and both parties of the New York State Legislature, was not just about native sites. We're talking about, you know, finding unmarked graves of, of, former, of slaves, of, um, uh, of s- revolutionary soldiers. I mean, so it wasn't just us. Obviously, it was an issue that was pushed by us. So, so we have some pretty good problems with, uh, you know, with Kathy Hochul. And, and, and I, I spoke to a New York Times reporter uh, by the name of Jay Root, who just uh, released a story this, um, this past week. Uh, in, and I think it was a front-page story in the New York Times uh, about Kathy Hochul. And, and it's going to be followed up by, by more because I think, you know, she was, you know, look, she was handed a, co- a congressional seat and then got lost in election. She was handed essentially the lieutenant governor seat. Um, and then because of Cuomo having to uh, resign in disgrace, she became, you know, a governor without being elected. Now, she did get elected barely, barely got elected in this past election um, in a predominantly Democratic state. So it's, look, she's, she's a problem. And, uh, and you know, we're going to continue to oppose her and fight her on, on any number of things you know, coming up along the way. So... Um, let's see, what else? Um, I, as I've mentioned before, I'm on the New York State Education Department's Advisory Council for Indigenous Mascots. And uh, in fact, we just, uh, we just met this morning. Um, and we continue to, to deal with schools who are trying to manipulate 
the rules, which haven't been formally adopted yet. In fact, they're going to be adopted probably in, in a couple of weeks uh, by the New York State Board of Regents. Um, and then it becomes essentially law. Um, but they're trying to fight this, this ban that was issued by uh, NYSED, the New York uh, State Education Department, banning the use of native mascots. And, and this impacts schools in Long Island, schools out in Western New York, in the area that I live in, but all, all over the state. And there's somewhere between 60 and 100 schools still in New York State that have a native mascot or some imagery, even if their names may not be you know, necessarily solely associated with native people, but names like Raiders, when you know, most of these schools were called Red Raiders and they had a native, you know, usually a, a Plains Indian headdress profile on their, for their logo. So when they drop the name Red and they say, well, we're not really talking about native people anymore. Yeah, but you did for 70 years. And so this is the role that we as an advisory council has played. Say, no, if you're, gonna, if you're being called upon to rebrand your mascot, then rebrand it all. Not just the name, not just the logo, but the whole thing. Um, you know, so this is, this is kind of what we've been, uh, we've been up against. Um, and, and I'm grateful to NYSED because, look, I'm not sitting on this council. I'm not paid for, for Let me be clear with that. And I'm not, you know, I am now, I'm not now uh, have become a shill for Governor Hochul. No, by no means. NYSED is a, is a fairly apolitical um, entity. You look, they are responsible for education. And that oftentimes, you know, gets dubbed by the right as being liberal anyway, because uh, we, we see what, what governors like Ron DeSantis is, is doing about education in Florida. Um, so, but it's a pretty apolitical organization. I don't know who, I mean, it's, most of these people were, were a part of NYSED before Hochul became governor. So um, they aren't her appointees and they aren't political gifts and that kind of stuff. Um, the, most of the people are dedicated towards education. But I'll tell you, it, it became apparent to me that Dr. Betty Rosa, the commissioner of, of the education department, wanted to do this. And she needed certain things to fall into place. And the fight that I waged against Cambridge, New York, against the Cambridge Central School District in New York, where I, went to, where I graduated from high school, actually became the catalyst for this, this ban. And for those who don't recall, I, I went back to my old high school and I said, um, it's time for you to change the name. I've, I've stepped up in, in school district after school district uh, to raise this issue, including you know, in Western New York, Lancaster School District. I was a part of a committee that the uh, school board had uh, enlisted the help from, from to explain what was wrong with being called the Redskins. So, I mean, and I, so I've been doing this for years, but I never went to my old school until, in, until late um, 2020. And I, and I formally asked them to, to retire their, their mascot. Um, the, it turns out by the end of that school year, they, they did retire it on, uh, with a, a narrow board vote. Then they seated two new board members and rescinded that retirement with no cause. They didn't give, offer any explanation other than the fact that two people ran under a mascot campaign uh, you know, platform and were elected. So that they interpreted as a referendum from the community, which you know, issues of social justice should not be determined by, you know, a referendum or the same means you, you, you choose a prom queen. But that's what they, the Cambridge tried to do. I worked with some families and uh, they petitioned NYSED to, um, uh, to vacate 
that last resolution, claiming that the board had acted arbitrarily and capriciously and had abused their discretionary authority, Dr. Rosa agreed. Cambridge sued Dr. Rosa and I said and lost. And it was at that point that I started pushing Dr. Rosa and I said to say, look, you obviously had the legal authority to tell one school they had to vacate a, um, their, their mascot, which means you have the authority to do, to do it to all schools. So rather than let a bunch of schools languish in an open debate that becomes very vitriolic and sometimes almost dangerous in terms of the threat of violence and that kind of stuff and vandalism, uh, issue the statewide ban. You have the legal authority to do it. Otherwise, you couldn't have done it to Cambridge. Um, and in fact, that was part of Cambridge's, which, which they're still appealing, by the way. They were part of the, what their initial appeal was that they were being picked on. They were being singled out. Well, the fact of the matter is the 310 petition from Cambridge family. So they weren't being picked on. That was just the case before, uh, before Dr. Rosa. But I pushed for this. But as it turns out, in kind of a conversation that, that I had with, with Dr. Rosa, she, they were waiting for a Cambridge to do just what they did so they could take this up to the next notch and do what they did, they, they've done. Look, and being a part of this advisory council, for me, was the, the state, through its education department, acknowledging that this was always our fight. And even in the, uh, in the um, administration of the regulations associated with this ban, that our voices should still count. And, and there's little doubt that, that I'm probably among the more vocal people on this, on this council. Uh, I've given a couple of interviews, both in, in Western New York and in the Albany area, um, relating to you know, a couple of maneuvers that schools were trying to do. And I don't shy away from the fact that, that I'm on the, uh, this advisory council. I understand why some of the others don't necessarily want to promote their individual names, it's because they don't want to backlash towards their nations. They're, most of them are, are tribal officials of some sort. They're chiefs or they're, they're uh, you know, on, on the tribal councils or, or in some way uh, employed by the, uh, you know, by the nation's governments in, in those territories. And so, you know, I, I get that. And, and, so, and I don't consider that weaseling out or anything like that. I, I, I appreciate the position that they're taking. And we're all doing good work. So regardless of whether the public has full disclosure on every name that's on there, usually that's, that's not necessarily a good thing. It just gives them more ammunition to attack us. And, for, and fr quite frankly, I've gotten my share of, uh, of attacks and, and criticisms and, and threats. And uh, I had somebody uh, post on my site, and it wasn't even to me. It was to my good friend Donna Van Boyle saying, well, let's cut all the BS. The only thing hurting the image of Native people are Indians themselves. They're nothing but a bunch of drunks who live off the, uh, off the federal government, which neither one of those are true. And in fact, I've, I had it cited several times to me, you know, claiming that we're all drunks is like claiming all white people are, are, are heroin or fentanyl addicts because of the fentanyl crisis that exists. And look, that never got the attention until all of a sudden white people started dying. When white kids started dying as a result of fentanyl, all of a sudden it became a national crisis. But as long as it was, it was people of color who were dying of overdoses, yeah, it was a crime and punishment issue. It wasn't a, um, a treatment uh, issue. But, uh, and I don't resent the fact that, there is, that, that these addictions are, are being treated the way they're being treated, in, including the, the news that, uh, that Narcan may be an over-the-counter uh, um, uh, over availability. I, look, it is a crisis, and it's a crisis that, that affects Native territories too. But it's not because we have a, a natural propensity to, to substance abuse. It's just that 
when you've been endured the trauma that Native people have endured, you know, through the American genocide, and knowing that the alcohol was, I mean, I don't know if many people, many people realize this, but, but rum was actually requisitioned as a part of um, the, a part of what um, negotiators on behalf of the federal government had to have for treaty negotiations. They would make sure they brought barrels of rum to the table for, for treaty negotiations. So, I mean, the, the idea that, that we would be coerced with alcohol and drunkenness to, to enter into these, these treaties, and whether we were, they were legitimately ratified on our side or not, is just an example. I mean, it's not unlike the crack cocaine being introduced into the black communities. Alcohol was, was, um, was imposed upon us. And, you know, so to suggest that we're nothing but a bunch of drunks who live off the federal government, you know, is, it, it, it's, it's the height of um, um, ignorance and racism for, uh, and this was a, a Fonda Fultonville brave, you know, somebody who was committed to their, to their native mascot who, uh, who offered that, you know, that, you know, that in, intelligent comment on, on my Facebook pages. But, you know, this is kind of what we, what we expect. We expect a certain level of real racist response to, um, to being told that their mascot's inappropriate. But we also expect that some people will get it. And, and it's, as you know, my friend from Shinnecock said today, he's seen when certain people, and you're explaining this to them, that aha moment. And, and the example that I always try to give to help elicit that aha moment is, who else could you do this to? If you're a school that claims that you've got a native mascot because you're, because you're respecting and honoring us, well, how would you do that with black people or Jewish people or you know, uh, um, his, Hispanic people or, or anybody else? The fact is you couldn't. And, and I'm not saying that, the, that native mascots are the only inappropriate ones, but we're the only people used this way. I frankly have an issue with, with some of these, especially these Christian schools, calling themselves crusaders. I find that, that terminology problematic because it is, it is race-based and it's, and it's violent. I mean, the Crusades, I mean, this wasn't King Arthur looking for the Holy Grail. This was the wholesale slaughter of non-Christians, of pagans in, in Europe for the most part. And, and, and they pushed their way all the way to the Middle East. I mean, it was, it was a violent crusade against pagans and and I find it problematic that, that any school you know, should be able to use something that, you know, that kind of marks that kind of disgusting era of, uh, of European history. But, um, you know, and then there was another school in, in Granville, New York, I think that I can't remember what their, what their, what their nickname is, but it has something to do with like Yellow Horde or something like that. And they use a, um, an image of a, uh, somebody from, from Mongolia. So they have this Asian Mongolian uh, logo, and 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 I'm hoping that NYSED, um addresses those issues as well. And it sounds like they will. They br they brought some of this stuff up themselves. But being on this um, Indigenous Mascot uh, Advisory Council, uh, we're kind of narrowly focused on on the even the the kind of more vague usage usages of uh, of native imagery. And, and the part of it is, and, and I acknowledge, I'll be the first to acknowledge that, that these were not intended to be offensive, but they're offensive. They're offensive because you are using a living, breathing people as a mascot, albeit 
your mascots are oftentimes just 18th century images of who we are, which is, which is a problem all by itself because it, it essentially treats us as if we are no longer here, that we are only here then. Um, and and, it's, and it's, it creates stereotypes. The stereotypes that we have to confront every day as we interact with industry leaders, you know, uh, corporate leaders, politicians, reporters, lawyers, our own lawyers, we have to educate. We have to convince them that no, we aren't those those violent images that you know, redskins, warriors, savages. That uh, well, Thomas Jefferson referred to us as merciless Indian savages in the in the De Declaration of Independence. So we have a lot of history that we have to confront when we confront the stereotypes that were created. You know, and and Thomas Jefferson is guilty of doing the same thing. He he just characterized us all as merciless Indian savages whose method of warfare was a, was the, the destruction of all ages, genders, and you know, I don't know what the other one was, but <laughs> sexes and ages, I guess. Um, so, I mean, it, this is what we've endured, not only through, you know, the political process, but this is the way that racism becomes institutionalized. When schools, when white privilege allows a whole community of white people to say, hey, we're going to call ourselves Indians. And we're going to plug in these characteristics that we think apply to them. And we're going to make them aggressive. We're going to make them, um, of course, noble and, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and prideful and, and all that other stuff. We're going to give them all these characteristics that, that we want to claim for ourselves. And we're going to put it on this native image. And we're going to call ourselves Indians. You know, and the reality is most of these schools couldn't even tell you who the native people were that their town replaced. They couldn't tell you. That, that's why they use words like Indians or Redskins or, or Braves or Chiefs or something like that because they wouldn't even know. They don't care enough to research who we were that were displaced from that territory or where we went or why we went someplace. So this is kind of what we, you know, what we confront with a, with a lot of this stuff. And, and so as some schools tried to manipulate language and say that, okay, we're still going to call ourselves chiefs, but now uh, we're going to not use native imagery, and then people can assume that we mean anything from a fire chief to a police chief. No, you don't. And look, none of these words are ours. Chief isn't ours. I mean, that was you know, something I think that came from you know, Scotland or Ireland, or I don't, I don't know where the words come from, but it wasn't our word. We, that's not, our word is rodionesu. It's, um, it's not the word chief. Even sachem, that's not our word. Uh, brave isn't our word. And you know, we had a school in, uh, in central New York that, that tried to say, that, well, they're going to call themselves the Braves, but now they don't mean native people. They're referring to the last line of the, uh, of the national anthem. Well, the last, last line of the national anthem is home of the brave. And brave is an adjective. It's not a noun. So you can't pluralize it. And, and if you're going to run around calling yourself the Braves, whatever you're going to call, you know, use as a logo after that, um, it's still going to invoke the same imagery that you used for 70 years. So that's what we've, that's what we've confronted. Even as schools have tried to keep the words that they, that they were using, the nicknames they used, and change the imagery, um, you know, that we've said, look, it, it just doesn't go away. And, you know, and in fact, one of the issues that was brought up today is you've got schools that have banners hanging from their, their, the rafters of their gymnasium or in their trophy cases that, that have that logo or mascot or nickname you know, on their trophies or in, on these banners and, you know, should they be replaced? And, you know, and frankly, I, you know, here's the way it stands right now. NYSED issued the ban in November. 
They're saying at the end of this school year, schools are required to have the plan uh, detailed on how they're eliminating their mascot. And then they have to the end of the 24-25, the 2024-2025 the school year to have eliminated the mascot. Um, and to me, that means eliminating the imagery um, throughout the school. And, you know, and look, if you've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars plastering your school with this imagery, well, shame on you. You were asked to, uh, to get rid of it 22 years ago by the education commissioner at that time, Richard Mills. And the fact that some of you have dug in and spent, you know, capital improvement dollars on your gymnasium and your football field and, and have, have embedded that, uh, that logo every place, um, it's, it's still a problem. Of course, the one exception, and I've got to bring this up because uh, I did a couple of interviews here in Western New York uh, that were that became related to a one particular school district, and one of the exceptions that um, was issued in this ban was that if a school could gain the permission of a na of the nation that was most associated with the area that the school is located in, they could be given an exception. It's not a waiver. It's, it's, a, it's an exception. And that exception only exists as long as that permission exists. So if a nation said, okay, we're going to give you permission today, but um, there's a turnover in, in leadership or, or whatever in, in the community or, you know, or sentiment, that permission could be taken away, and then you'd be left having to change it anyway. But there's one school uh, out here in western New York. It's, in, it's located in the city of Salamanca. Now, the city of Salamanca and – other parts, other hamlets in that area, in that area, part of that school district, is mostly located on the Allegheny territory of the Seneca Nation. And Senecas in that territory attend that school. They aren't the majority. I mean, I, I, I think the school superintendent tried to suggest that, you know, over 50% of the student body was Native. And, and that's not, simply not true. It's not. Um, it's probably closer to 20%. And I, and I dare them to produce the percentage of graduates uh, for each graduating class, how many of them are native. I suspect it drops off pretty good. So for this school to, to say that, you know, they're so populated by native people, the, the, the school is located on uh, Seneca territory. And it, this isn't ancestral Seneca land. This is actual Seneca land. It's, it's on the Allegheny territory uh, of, the, of the Seneca Nation. Um, I think the Seneca Nation has been tolerant of it, um, some have been very acceptant of the, uh, uh, of the nickname, which is the Warriors. And the logo that they use, which isn't really a warrior, it's, it's more looks like a Seneca chief, <clears throat> which would not be a warrior. It would be a, a man of peace. Um, so the, the logo and the, and the name doesn't even align. But if you go into the gymnasium, you see this big, virile, um, you know, masculine, muscular, aggressive, if not violent, image of a warrior looks like it's attacking you from the, from the mural. And, and we're, this is an oversized mural, so this is a big image on the, on the gym, uh, gymnasium wall. So the question the Seneca Nation has to ask themselves is, does the location of the school and the fact that some of our kids go to the school, does it negate everything we know about the harm that Native mascots uh, cause? You know, every child development expert, every psychological association, including the New York State Association of School Psychologists has said that it's harmful to both Native and non-Native kids. Now, and keep in mind, the majority of the kids in the city of Salamanca School District are non-Native. So you're still allowing that identity to be appropriated 
by the, the predominantly non-native public in, in, the, in the city of Salamanca. So I still find it problematic. I appreciate that, the, that NYSED gave some deference to the Seneca Nation because of the unique situation, at least in this instance. But we also saw a school that went chief shopping and tried to find somebody who get, they could promote as a chief to give them permission. That was, again, the Fonda Fultonville School District. And, and they went after, you know, the lovable Tom Porter, uh, who, has, who has a site in that, in that area that, that he has a little commune Indian village. And they said, well, our local chief gave us permission. Well, you don't have a local chief. And they tried to pass him off as the chief of the Mohawk Nation, which uh, was soundly rejected by, by NYSED. But this is what we have. So that's my update for this week. Uh, again, uh, repudiation of the Doctrine of Discovery, anniversary of Kathy Hochul's real foul play against the Senecas, and uh, kind of an update on the advisory council for NYSED, uh, the Indigenous Mascot Advisory Council, which I will keep, uh, you know, I'll, I'll probably keep offering tidbits of information as, as more and more schools scramble to, to try to save their native mascots. Um, and some of the good news that we hear out of some of the schools who have, who have voluntarily, albeit late in the game, um, decided that they were going to do this anyway. So, uh, look, I'm John Kane. This is Resistance Radio. I hope you support this program and you support the stations that, that carry this program, and that's WPFW in Washington, D.C. Uh, the pledge line is 202-588-9739 or online at wpfwdc.org slash donate and WBAI in New York, where it all started. <laughs> WBAI in New York, and that's 212-209-2950 or go to give to wbai.org. Look, you can't assume that that I'm always going to be here or the station's always going to be here. We rely on you, the listeners, to support the station. So, um, so please do. Again, I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Thanks for listening.